0: and bare your teeth, listeners, because it's time for Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every culture on Earth has these unique rituals, whispered stories and warnings that get passed around. Like four-leaf clovers are lucky or don't toast with a glass of water. Then there's the one about the number of stairs in your home. Make sure they are divisible by three. These superstitions might seem like simple, harmless fun. Stories to pass the time, relics from the days of yore. But they can be wolves in sheep's clothing. So take heed, and if you're lucky, the claws won't come out. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up... An Arrogant American Meets a Roman Wolf In America, we're all familiar with the popular expression, break a leg. You might say it to a friend going in for a job interview, or a cousin before his soccer tryout. In the theatre, you'd say it to an actor taking the stage. Many cultures have their own versions. What unites them is the same belief. It's bad luck to say, good luck. Italians hold a similar belief, but a very different turn of phrase. The direct translation of good luck is buona fortuna, but instead, Italians often prefer to say, in bocca al lupo, which means, in the mouth of the wolf. It sounds pretty strange, I'll admit, what do wolves have to do with luck? But then, is it any stranger than encouraging a friend to break their leg? The Italian superstition doesn't stop there. If someone says "imbocca al lupo to you, the correct response is never grazie or thank you. That would be bad luck. Instead, you say crepi, or the full version crepi lupo, which means may the wolf die. Why all the elaborate rigmarole just to wish someone good luck? We'll get to that in a minute. The important thing is that you never skip the second part of the tradition, as the man in today's story discovered. Leonard and Maria were at the I love you stage of their relationship when they landed in Rome. They said it so often that you might wonder if it was true. I love that you refuse to put your seat upright, Maria said, unwrapping a piece of gum. Leonard smiled. He loved that she loved so much about him, and he, her. I love that you chew gum during takeoff and landing, he said. Maria smiled, about to respond, but Leonard wasn't finished, even though it's scientifically proven to be meaningless, he added. Her gullibility was cute. Well, my mom always told me that it's what you do, and I think it helps, she said, trailing off. Leonard sensed she might be upset, which just didn't make sense. He said he liked it, not that he didn't. But then she put her gum back into its wrapper and added, You're right, it's probably just a placebo effect. So he concluded that she was fine. They traveled to Rome for Leonard's work. He was a philosophy grad student, attending a conference at John Cabot University. He'd been given a coveted presentation slot, one he knew he'd earned by contributing so much during discussions. This was his first real presentation as an academic, and it felt fitting that it was in Europe, where he had spent his most wonderful semester in college. Even if he had studied in Spain, he'd spent 10 days in Italy, so he was practically a local. But the best part of the trip was that he could take Maria to Rome. He could show her everything he knew about the city. He had them drop their bags at the hotel and go straight to the Colosseum. But there was an endless line to get in, of course. Ugh, tourist central, Leonard said. Half of these people don't even know what happened here. They just went because they heard it was important to see. Maria gestured up ahead. The ancient amphitheater loomed in the distance. But isn't there a reason that tourists all want to see the same places? They're impressive. I mean, look at it. It's so old. It was certainly impressive. But do you know exactly how old? Leonard asked. Construction started in 70 AD. Maria responded swiftly. Leonard turned, waiting to ask how she could know that. But the answer was right in her hands. Maria had taken out her guidebook, one with a splashy cover that read, there's no place like Rome. It featured a drawing of four tourists skipping down a road toward Vatican City. Leonard was mortified. He looked around to see if anyone was watching them. I can't believe you didn't leave that at the hotel, he said quietly. We look like those people who buy souvenir t-shirts and wear them around the city. ''So, you're saying I shouldn't wear a Vatican sweatshirt to your presentation?'' Maria asked. Leonard's whole body tensed. Maria said she was only joking, but he was in Rome as a successful academic. The last thing he wanted to do was look like a tourist. Yet Maria only egged him on, exclaiming, ''The book says this is where the Romans had bear fights. Did you know the ancient Romans used to watch bears kill humans for sport?'' Good thing they don't do that anymore. Leonard grew frustrated. Of course I know about the bear fights, he said dismissively, even though this was the first he'd heard of them. Are you ready to put the book away? Maria smiled, then flipped through a few more pages, taunting him. Well, did you know that instead of good luck, in Italy you say Imbocco el Loppo? Do you know what that means? Leonard rolled his eyes. It was the simplest translation. In the mouth of the wolf. Exactly, Maria responded. And instead of thanking them, you're supposed to reply with creppy, meaning may the wolf die. Leonard told her she really should put the book away. Maria believed things too easily. Sure, people say that, but it's just a fun fact about the language. Nobody actually does it, not in the real world. Okay, said Maria. But I study theatre, and us show folk don't like to tempt fate. Are you still show folk if you haven't worked on a play in ten years?" Leonard asked. Maria didn't respond. She was quiet through their tour of the Coliseum, aside from occasionally telling Leonard he really should listen to the tour guide. She was cranky, he thought, probably just hungry. For lunch, Leonard took Maria into a small pub that he knew to be a local haunt. He knew it was a good choice when they sat down. The place was bustling, the patrons were well-dressed Italians, and the candles in the center of the table were lit. This was what he had invited Maria to Italy for, romance and conversation. Leonard tried to tell her about the Byzantine influence in the architecture, about how he could explain how a dome was built, if she were interested she wasn't. Then, after a tense silence, she stood up and said she needed to use the bathroom. Leonard sat by himself at the table and looked around. If Maria was going to be a while, he thought, he might as well find somebody else to speak with. So, when he noticed a man sitting alone at the next table, Leonard grew excited. This was his opportunity for a real Italian conversation. The man looked to be in his 50s, but his eyes made him seem older. He had a long, scraggly beard, an unkemptness different from the other pub-goers. Leonard leaned over and asked the man what he was drinking, but he asked in Italian to prove he wasn't like the other tourists. Salve, signore. Che cosa stai bevendo? The man responded, but his sentences flew by fast. Leonard heard the word liquore, but not much else. He stared blankly, trying to run a translation in his head. The man laughed, realizing Leonard didn't speak as much Italian as he pretended. He switched to English. I said, what brings you to a beautiful city? Oh, Leonard replied, a little embarrassed. I'm a grad student. I'm giving una presentazione all'università. The man nodded silently. Leonard tried to think of what to say next, but thankfully, Maria returned from the bathroom to break the silence. She seemed much happier and even squeezed Leonard's hand gently as she sat down. Ah, young lovers, the man exclaimed. Leonard looked to Maria, glad to have smoothed over their disagreement. He said, This is my girlfriend, Maria. I've been telling her all about Italian culture. Maria asked the man if he recommended anything to do while they were in town. He suggested a few restaurants and then added, Palatine Hill is worth the hype. It's where the whole city began, you know. Maria nodded and said, That's on my list. Leonard quickly chimed in, not wanting Maria to seem uncool. He knew the man only recommended the Palatine Hill to pander to Maria's obvious Americanness. Last time I was here, we decided to skip it. Too touristy, he said. Maria dropped Leonard's hand. ''Well, I haven't been here before, and I would like to see it,'' she said. The man looked obviously uncomfortable. Leonard didn't want to lose his interest in them, so he smiled at Maria and said, ''I suppose it can't hurt to do one more tourist thing, if you really want to.'' He put his arm around her, and her whole body tensed. Probably nervous in front of strangers, Leonard thought. They still had so much to learn about each other. ''Don't write it off so fast.'' The man chimed in, pulling on the end of his beard. Many things about Roma will surprise you. He turned to Leonard. Suddenly his tone was more curt than polite. You said you're here for a presentation? Leonard nodded and told the man about his philosophy research, but he had a suspicion the man wasn't listening. It was probably the language barrier. Leonard knew that English was difficult to learn. The man tipped his hat and stood to leave. In Bocco al Lupo he said. Leonard grinned. That he understood. He stood up and replied, Grazie! Maria jumped up and yelled, Grappi! But the man had already turned to Leonard, a strange, knowing look on his face. Coming up, a wolf stalks its prey.
1: Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: Now back to the story. That evening, Maria had suggested a local play, something she'd heard about from a college theater friend. Leonard wasn't sure he wanted to go, He felt oddly resentful that Maria had an insider tip about the city. He was the authority on Europe, after all. But after Maria yelled "Crepi" to the man in the restaurant, Leonard was determined to prove to her that nobody actually said "Crepi." He agreed to go. And when they walked up to the small theater and Leonard overheard the actors saying «Imboco a lupo», his ears perked up. He whispered to Maria to pay attention. None of them would respond with "Crepi." he was sure. But to his dismay, every one of them did. By Thursday, the day before his presentation, Leonard was on edge. He had a giant knot in his stomach that wouldn't go away and almost threw up his breakfast. He focused all his energy on regaling Maria with stories of his semester in Europe. It made him feel connected to her and a little less sick. In the morning, they rented a scooter and rode it around the city, taking in neighborhood after neighborhood, Leonard showed Maria how to toss a coin into the trevi, kissed her on the Spanish steps, and pointed out all the details of the Sistine Chapel. But throughout the day, the knot in Leonard's stomach tightened. He had an unpleasant feeling that something was following him. I think someone's following us, he said to Maria. Stay close to me. I know being in a foreign country can be a little scary. There are enough people around that I'm not worried she said. Leonard felt suddenly ashamed. He tried to let it go, but his worry didn't go away. And later, as they lingered at the base of the Barcacha fountain, he heard a weird grumbling noise behind him. He turned. An American family was taking photos with the gladiator, nothing else. But there it was again. Did you hear that? he asked Maria. It sounded like an animal. Maria rolled her eyes. Just because they're taking novelty pictures doesn't make them animals. That's not what I was saying. But now that you mention it, Leonard said. Maria sighed. What was that about? Leonard asked. Maria shook her head. Nothing. Maria didn't talk much the rest of the day. Leonard thought she was hungry again. But even lunch didn't seem to pick up her energy. So that afternoon, he suggested they visit Palatine Hill, like she wanted. I can tell you all about Roman history, he said. Besides, maybe the walking would help him clear his nerves. Sure, Maria said. As they walked from the train stop, Leonard felt more himself. He was setting the scene for Maria, telling her about the founding of Rome, the legendary brothers Romulus and Remus had disagreed over where they could build their city. Romulus had argued for Palatine Hill, a strategic spot that would make the city easy to defend. Maria interrupted him. I read the story. Remus was arrogant and thought he knew better than his brother. He marked the construction site Romulus had started, then Romulus killed him. Leonard's stomach dropped. This was clearly not hunger. She was mad at him, but he didn't know why and didn't want to get into a fight by asking her. He distracted himself by moving off to look at the ruins. He peeked into a small, cave-like structure and was greeted by a pair of yellow eyes. Leonard lurched backward, tripping over his feet and smacking his butt on the dirt. When he looked back up, the eyes were gone. He glanced around the tiny cave, heart pounding in his chest. But there was nowhere for anyone or anything to hide. Had he imagined it? Leonard wasn't sure, but he felt as though something awful would happen if he didn't leave immediately. What are you doing on the ground? Leonard turned to see Maria staring at him and scrambled back to his feet. Just uh, tying my shoes. Maria went back to surveying the ruins. It's amazing to think this whole city exists just because a wolf protected two babies, she said. That's just a story, Maria, there's no way it's true. Leonard said, but as soon as the words left his mouth, his stomach turned a few times. He felt hot breath on the back of his neck and spun around, but there was nothing there. Still, he felt certain that they were being watched. Maria looked annoyed. Just because you don't believe the story, you can't just say it doesn't matter. The logic isn't the point, she gestured off to their right. Like, just imagine that Romulus built a wall right over there and then Remus fell off of it. And as she said it, Leonard actually saw the wall appear in front of him. He saw a faceless man walk along the top of the wall and a wolf beneath him. Then the man fell. The wolf caught him in its mouth and gobbled him up whole. Leonard? Maria had called his name, making him jump. The vision dissolved as quickly as it had appeared. Leonard shook his head and blinked, suddenly queasy. I think we'd better head back, he suggested, I'm not feeling like myself. That night, Leonard slept fitfully. He dreamed he was trying to get to his presentation, but the wolf was chasing him, up and down the Spanish steps, along the Tiber River and into a piazza filled with restaurants but he couldn't find John Cabot University. His phone was dead, and he longed for Maria and her guidebook. Leonard ran right into the table of a sweet older couple sending pasta and wine flying onto the sidewalk. The couple looked at him with disapproval, their eyes boring into his soul. Leonard paused. The woman looked strikingly like Maria, but she wasn't Maria. And suddenly, the wolf caught up to him. It pounced and pinned him to the ground. Leonard woke up covered in sweat. Maria bolted up too, startled awake by his scream. Leonard, what's the matter? You're drenched, she said. When he didn't respond, she pressed further. Are you worried about your presentation? Leonard wiped a trickle of sweat from his forehead. I'm fine, he replied. I don't have anything to be nervous about. I know my stuff." Maria noted that he'd said those exact words on their first date, but Leonard didn't remember it. The next day, Leonard went to the university setup for his presentation. He had gotten such a fitful night of sleep that he worried his focus would be shaken. So he practiced at the podium, saying his favorite line over and over again. No one needs a credential to hold a belief but there must be a higher bar for knowledge. Maria tried to calm him down, but he told her he didn't need it. She didn't know what it was like to have dozens of people watching him. College theater doesn't count, he said. Maria ignored him and sat down. Later, the room filled. There were maybe a hundred people, the biggest group Leonard had ever spoken to. His hands shaking slightly, Leonard glanced at his first note card, and addressed the room. He tried speaking in Italian at first and assumed that the audience would be very impressed. But for the first time, the language sounded hollow and clunky in his ears. No one looked impressed. He tried it again in English. Do we know we are sitting in this room right now, or do we merely believe? Leonard grew hot. He was very aware of all their eyes staring at him, but he pressed on. To decide which of these is true, we must consider how much we trust our own perceptions. I've been blessed with a great deal of trust in myself, but you might not be. He realized he was looking at Maria as he said this. The look on her face said she realized it too. But something else had caught his attention. A strange shape lurked behind the last row of chairs. When he shook his head, It disappeared. Leonard started on his next point, but then saw a man with a very scraggly beard sitting all the way in the back. It was the man from the restaurant. At first, Leonard relished the moment. The man must have been so intrigued by the conversation that he came to his presentation. Travel really was a beautiful thing. He turned his attention back to his presentation, ready to impress the man with his knowledge but as soon as he opened his mouth to speak, he was interrupted by a growl. Something had changed in the back of the room. The man was a bit more... grisly, and his eyes were yellow, like a wolf's. You, Leonard said. The audience looked around nervously. Leonard noticed and went back into his microphone. I thought I spotted a friend in the audience he said. He looked back again, but the man was gone. My bad. Leonard tried to refocus, shifting into a loose summary of Plato's teachings, but as he spoke, the man reappeared, stepping into the aisle. This time, Leonard snapped at him. Excuse me, sir, this presentation is for guests of the university only. Are you a student or… The man smiled directly at Leonard, revealing a very large and very inhuman set of teeth. Leonard's eyes widened. If you don't have a student ID or a guest badge, you'll have to leave, Leonard stammered. Then he yelped as the man stepped toward him. The audience turned to see what had alarmed Leonard, but even though they were all staring right at the man with his big wolf-like teeth, their expressions remained blank. Leonard looked around for Maria, hoping to see something supportive, but she was staring back at him with a worried expression. Maybe he was just hallucinating, a product of the stress of the week, but then the man stepped closer and got down on all fours. Leonard looked down at his note cards, trying to regroup. He had to just ignore it and get on with the presentation. But when he looked back up, the man was gone. Or, more accurately, transformed. He had turned into a full-blown wolf. Nobody noticed the wolf, but the wolf noticed Leonard. It stalked down the aisle toward him, growling and pawing at the carpet. Leonard stood stock still. It isn't real, he told himself. I just have to ignore my senses and trust my brain. Then, with a snarl, the wolf pounced, bounding toward the stage. Leonard turned and bolted for the emergency exit. Leonard flew down a long hallway, past students and professors who gave him looks of alarm and concern. He ignored them all, certain that as soon as he stopped, the wolf would be on top of him. He spotted a men's room and barreled through the door. Leonard barricaded himself in a stall and sat on the toilet, catching his breath. His brow was mocked with sweat. What did I eat last night? He wondered. That bistro he took Maria to hadn't been such a good choice after all. Leonard heard the door open. And his heart froze, half expecting to hear the approach of padded feet and panting breath. But it was just a couple of students, chatting in rapid-fire Italian. His phone buzzed in his pocket and he checked it. A stream of worried texts from Maria. Where are you? And, Are you okay? Can't find you. Call me. Leonard started to type a response. I'm fine. Hold the audience. But before pressing send, he stopped himself. He swallowed, feeling ashamed. Then he pocketed the phone and weakly pushed himself to his feet. Leonard went back into the room, a gladiator preparing for battle. But when he returned, the wolf was gone. So was the audience. Only Maria remained. She was still fused to her seat, looking exhausted. They locked eyes. Where were you? she demanded. I called you a dozen times. I thought you were having some kind of nervous breakdown. Just, um, food poisoning, said Leonard sheepishly. You shouldn't have worried. Maria's eyes hardened. Suddenly, she seemed resolute. She stood up. Right. Well, seeing as you don't need me here, I'm sure you prefer to enjoy the rest of the trip alone. You can skip all the touristy spots. In Boco al Lupo, she said, grabbing her things and stalking angrily toward the exit. Leonard stared after her aghast. He knew that he had messed up, but he couldn't let their relationship end this way. He was ready to change, so he did the only thing he could think of. He called out a single word. Grebby. Maria froze in the amphitheatre's exit, one foot out the door. She stood there for a long moment, staring out. Then she sighed and gestured for him to follow. A few moments later, Leonard and Maria exited the university, emerging onto a pathway that led along the Tiber River. Maria stopped suddenly. This is the spot I read about, she said, digging in her purse for something. When Romulus and Remus were just babies, they were put in this river to save them from being killed. Really? said Leonard. I didn't know that. Maybe I'll take a look at that travel book when we get back to the hotel. Hand in hand, Maria and Leonard headed off into the hazy Roman afternoon. Neither one of them noticed the unkempt bearded man watching them from a nearby cafe. He smiled to himself, yellow eyes peering at the couple over the pages of a travel book. There's no place like Rome. While we don't know exactly where the phrase Imbocua Lupo came from, One theory concerns the story of the founding of Rome. According to the legend, the twin brothers Romulus and Remus were the sons of the Roman god Mars and a mortal woman. The local king knew about their divine parentage and feared that the twins would one day overthrow him, so he tried to have them killed. The assassin took pity on the infants and instead of drowning them, he set them adrift on the Tiber River. They eventually washed up on the shore where they were found by a mother wolf. She fed and raised them on Palatine Hill, nursing them to health and strength. When the king eventually died, the brothers went to found their own city. But like we might expect from siblings, there was a disagreement about where to place it. Romulus insisted that the city be on Palatine Hill where they were rescued, but Remus preferred a different spot. The argument grew contentious, and either Romulus or one of his supporters murdered Remus. Then Romulus founded the city and named it Rome, after himself. This story demonstrates the deep significance of wolves to Italian culture, but it's not the only theory on the origin of Imboco a Lupo. Others say the phrase comes from Italian hunters, who used it to wish each other fortune in an upcoming hunt. In this case, the response, Crepia lupo, or may the wolf die, is literal. Any hunter setting off in search of a wolf knew they were heading into danger. Once they cornered their prey, they entered a deadly gauntlet with their life and livelihood on the line. If their aim was true and the wolf fell, the hunter didn't just survive. They walked away with meat and wolf pelt to sell. They stared death in the face and came out richer for it. In this context, imboko alupo isn't so much an invocation of luck as it is a phrase of encouragement and a reminder of everything at stake. It's a way of saying, you've got a serious challenge ahead of you, but buckle down and stay focused and it will all be worth it. If you think about it, there's a funny irony here. Like so many superstitions, the phrase imboko alupo gives modern users a sense of control over an unknown future. We can see this in the strict rule set, a response of Grazie brings you bad luck, while saying "crepi" brings you good luck. But for the hunters who used it literally, the phrase was the opposite of superstitious. It was a reminder that you are in control, and it's very important that you deliver the goods. After all, when you look a wolf in the mouth, the only outcome is death. The only question is, who is going to walk away, the hunter or the wolf? Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Julie Pearson, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Adriana Gomez and Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden.
1: Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries, every Wednesday on Spotify, Join me and my co-host, Carter, as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.